0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with a church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and when one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine, that there would be a great famine over the world, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that that name came about and stuck, Luke tells us, in his history of the early church. And... The word there, Christians, it's in the original Greek, the word that was first used during that time. It's Christianus, which really just means Christ ones. That's what it means. There were Herodians during the time who who citizens in support of Herod's dynasty, the Herodians. Well, here is a group of people called Christians, Christ people, the the Christ man, the, the Christ woman. Those Christ people. When, when I went to my 20th, my 20-year high school reunion, which wasn't too long ago, I went to my 20-year high school reunion, and somebody uh, I had literally had not seen in 20 years said, yeah, you were the, I remember you. You were the guy who played the piano. Because that's kind of what I was known for in, in high school. You're the guy who played the piano. And, and if you read my high school yearbook, not that you would want to, But um, if I read through my high school yearbook, uh, we used to, you know, friends and acquaintances, you'd sign sign each other's yearbook. Hey, Brian, have a great life. Don't ever change. You know, fight the power, whatever. You know, have a good life, whatever. In many instances, I I noticed that people didn't address me as Brian. They addressed me as Piano Man. Now, the significance to that is people would remember me as that guy who was always sitting at the piano. When he didn't have class, he'd be in the band room sitting at the piano. The guy who's always trying to impersonate Billy Joel. If you can listen to the first, and I think I've lost it, I hope I have, the very first recording of a song that I wrote, I think I was 16 years old, it sounds like some little torpy kid trying to impersonate Billy Joel. And, and so I became known as, in my high school, the piano man because that's the guy who's always sitting at the piano i wonder if if people could if people could give you a name now based on how they understand you who and what you associate with how you identify yourself what would that name be think about it Scholars pretty much all agree that the word Christian, Christianus, was not a title that the Christians gave themselves. If you read in verse 26, it says, and it was in Antioch, that they were called, the believers were called Christian. It's a passive phrase. And somehow, the surrounding world said, Oh, those are the Christ people. Those are people that primarily associate themselves, that we associate with some, some person named Christ. Up until this point in his history, Luke has been calling them disciples, believers, saints, brothers, people who followed the way. But now the world began to refer to them as Christianus, Christ people. The first Christians were known for their commitment to Jesus and their connection to one another. That's where it began. That's how they developed that reputation. And that's what I want to talk to you today about is in the early church, their commitment to Jesus and their connection to each other. Now, you see the same commitment to Jesus of Nazareth that you saw in the Jerusalem church early on in the book of Acts. You see that same commitment now in 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 the Gentile city of Antioch, Luke opens the passage, w- reminding his readers of what started the dispersion. Uh, if you go back to Acts chapter seven and Acts chapter eight, you will remember that that by the by the initiation of that man Saul right, the the zealous Pharisee, the Christian hater Saul uh, initiated a a massive persecution of the early Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. And then they were scattered because of that persecution. Uh, and the real, the real sticking point was uh, the death, the execution of Stephen. Okay. Uh, Luke reminds us of that. And, and he, he told us in Acts chapter 8, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so he brings us back to that situation. He reminds us that's what's going on. And he says that that the Christian, the, the 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 Jesus followers, who were basically forced out of Jerusalem, uh, they started moving out into other, other places in the Roman Empire. And one of the places was Antioch, it's about three hundred miles north of Jerusalem. It's it's in so today it would be Western Turkey, uh, not far from the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman world. The only only cities bigger than Antioch were Rome, of course, and Alexandria. And Antioch was ethnically diverse. It was cosmopolitan. There were colonies of Jews living there, of Indians, of Persians, possibly even, some scholars say, Chinese. It was also a city that was was notorious for its debauchery. Even by the standards of the Romans, Antioch was an immoral place. But some courageous, dispersed Christ followers reached out to Gentiles in Antioch. And from what Luke tells us, they were Jews who were culturally Greek, they were Jewish Christians who were culturally Greek, spoke Greek, uh, were raised in parts of, of the Mediterranean world that were culturally Greek. It says they, they were people from Cyprus, which is an island in the Western Mediter- uh, eastern Mediterranean, uh, also from Cyrene, which is the coast of North Africa. These are, as Luke calls them earlier, they were Hellenistic Jews. They were were culturally and linguistically Greek, and they had a a closer connection uh, to the Gentile pagans living in Antioch, and those were the ones who reached out to the Gentiles in Antioch. Some of your English translations will say Hellenists in verse 20. Now there, Hellenists, that's referring to the Gentiles, specifically to the non-believing, Gentiles who had not yet heard of Jesus Christ. Some of your English translations will say Greeks or Grecians in verse 20. The point is this Greek speaking Jewish Christ followers find themselves in Antioch because of persecution and they engage the Gentile community in Antioch. And Luke tells us that the result is this burgeoning faith community of Jews. And Gentiles in this world-class city. This is not Jerusalem now. Bigger scale. And we find that in that city. They develop a reputation. From people in the city. From the broader community. Primarily for. Their association with this man. Jesus Christ. And so they were labeled Christians. Now. If, if, you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, or if you're thinking about what it means to be a Christian, um, I, I really want you to pay attention to this. You may associate Christians now, today, um, with various things like their political agenda. Right? Christians vote a certain way, politically. Or Christians get behind certain social platforms and causes, or Christians have certain moral opinions of people who are not like themselves, or Christians are pro this and anti that. You you may have a general impression of what Christians are now, but as you read the book of Acts, you see that back then Christians were first known for a person. That they identified with. That's what they were primarily known for. They identified themselves with, they associated themselves with a person. The world began identifying them for their commitment to Jesus. And it's really important to understand that first. And and it's all wrapped up in that word, Christian the Christ people. There was something else, though, that they were known for. Their commitment to this guy, Jesus, but their their connection to one another. Their commitment to one another. And I'm going to use the word connectivity. you You see the same connectivity taking place in this new church in Antioch that you saw back in Jerusalem. You see how they're committed to one another. This is the reason I'm using the word connectivity. I have several devices. On my person and in my house, I've got a phone, a tablet, a laptop, a desktop, a television, a car radio. That are all they all share this thing that we're that's called connectivity. It simply means they're all in sync, for better or for worse. All these devices and contraptions are in sync, and and we have teenagers with phones themselves, and for better or for worse, their devices are in sync with ours as well. Connectivity. So if you will, what you see taking place in Luke chapter 11 is the Holy Spirit of God is establishing a connectivity, a spirit of tangible connectivity in the church in Antioch. And between the church in Antioch, And the church in Jerusalem. And you see it primarily in this passage in three ways. You see this connectivity uh, in a shared belief that they had. You see it in a shared authority and accountability amongst themselves. And you see it in a shared generosity. I'm just going to unpack that a little bit. You see a connectivity with these early Christians in two different cities, 300 miles apart, by their shared belief, a shared authority amongst them and a shared generosity between them. There is a shared life transforming belief in Jesus that is evident in this early church community. In verse 21, we're told that many Gentiles in Antioch who believed turned to the Lord. And then we're told in verse 23 that Barnabas shows up. The church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas up their way And Barnabas sees what's happening and he's amazed and he rejoices and he begins to exhort them, Luke tells us, which simply means to encourage, to come alongside of somebody else. And in verse 23, he he encouraged them specifically to remain faithful to the Lord. So we see here a shared understanding of what it is they believed in, who they believed in and why it mattered in their lives. Antioch didn't develop a different faith system than the church in Jerusalem. Different cultures, uh, they're going to take different approaches and maybe different methodologies, but the same Jesus was believed in, preached and believed. And you see a shared faith between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. You also see a shared authority. And another way of saying this is a shared accountability. Amongst leaders. You see a shared authority in the leadership of these churches and in what they taught. You see the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Because that's where it all started. Okay? Every time there was an, a, a, new, a new flame of faith somewhere in the area of Judea or Samaria. What, what would happen? They'd send Peter out. Send Peter and John out. Make sure it's legit. Peter's recognized, he'll, he'll, he'll take care of this. Well, they don't send Peter this time, do they? They didn't send any of the original 12 apostles who were Hebraic Jews, culturally, linguistically, who had grown up in Judea and Jerusalem. Who did they send? They sent Barnabas. Where is Barnabas from? If you go back to Acts chapter 4, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Barnabas is culturally Greek. He's a Jewish Christian who's culturally Greek. He has a greater connection and an affinity to what's going on in Antioch, and they send Barnabas. They humble themselves, and they send Barnabas there. Barnabas shows up. He rejoices. He begins to teach, connecting them to what is believed in Jerusalem about Jesus. But then he did something really important. He he realized he couldn't do it alone, and he finds the perfect partner. And out of obscurity comes Saul, the ex zealous Pharisee, Christian hater, and persecutor. He finds Saul, who had been for years hanging out in, in his native city of Tarsus, because there were, there were Jews in Jerusalem who was after Saul. For, they were after Saul for his very life because he had become a Christian years before. And now scholars think about seven to eight years later, Barnabas goes looking for him. He knew Paul would be the perfect. He's culturally Greek also. He was well-educated. He'd be the perfect partner for a place like Antioch. And he finds Paul and he pulls him out of obscurity. And God says, now it's time for Paul to make his move in the world. Sorry, I keep calling him Paul. He's not Paul yet. He's still Saul, according to Luke's story. Saul comes into the picture. And, and it, you see now team ministry. You see Barnabas and Saul together leading and teaching the Christians in Antioch. And I thought, what humility for Barnabas to realize that he needed help. It says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And you see that in his approach, to not go it alone, but to find somebody to help him. And as a team, they worked together, and Barnabas, in wisdom and humility, invited Saul to reap a spiritual harvest that his own persecution had sown years earlier. So, from these Hebraic apostles in Jerusalem to this Hellenized man Barnabas to the exile Saul, you see leaders working together. There's a a shared authority and accountability in leading and in teaching between the two congregations. 300 miles apart, you don't see any leaders acting as loners here. They're working together, they're sharing the load, and they're holding one another accountable. Finally, I want to talk about the generosity that we see here in this passage. They have a shared belief, they have a shared accountability and authority structure and their leadership and there's also a shared generosity. Luke tells us in verse 28 that a famine took place in the days of the emperor Claudius. Now Claudius reigned, Claudius ruled in Rome from uh, 41 to 54 AD. It's well documented in history that there were several droughts and poor harvests recorded throughout the Roman world during Claudius's reign. Um, Rome. Greece, Egypt, and Judea. And so what you see happening is it's prophesied. This prophet shows up and says there's going to be a famine. And the Christians in Antioch respond in faith. And it says that they they decide to help the, the, the Christians, the believers, in Jerusalem. In verses 29 and 30. Luke tells us the disciples, that, no, he's talking about those in Antioch. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability. So we know it's not, it's not mandated. They weren't, they weren't forced to give. It just says everyone according to his ability, they determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The elders were in Jerusalem. So this is the same generosity you saw in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. You saw this happening in Jerusalem and now the same dynamic is taking place in Antioch. Not only in Antioch, but now you see this dynamic happening between Antioch and Jerusalem. You see a shared belief, a shared authority, a shared generosity, not only in these individual congregations in in, in two very different cities, but between these two congregations of Christ's followers. And the reason this is important is because we have to realize today, friends, that no church, if you're a Christian, no church is an island. Any more than any individual or any family can be an island. No church is an island. No person is an island. We need each other. And it's so clear in Acts chapter 11 that they realized they needed one another. And we're actually blessed to have one another. And that's what I mean by connectivity. Now, I want to ask you a question. What kills connectivity? What do you think? What, what limits or disables connectivity? Too many connections. <laughs> Too many connections. Amen. And I'm thinking about devices. Too many connections disables uh, connectivity. Well, well, that's uh, so. Uh, do you mean you can know too many Christians, or uh, there can be too many churches in the world? Very interesting. There, there's a way of approaching our connectedness. Uh, In that if we're not careful, uh, we can all go too shallow. And we have to be careful to preserve content and depth and ideas and meaningful relationships as Jesus expands his kingdom. Um, That's a good point. Over here I saw a hand. Prejudice kills connectivity. Good. Yeah. Absolutely. What else? Conflict. Conflict kills connectivity. What else? Gossip. Yes. Gossip kills connectivity. Gospel, gossip is like a virus in the operating system, isn't it? Yeah. Self focus kills connectivity. Okay. It's interesting. These are all related. There was another hand back here. Yeah. Ooh. A lack of communication, yeah I, I, I've learned the hard way I learned the hard the hard way uh, as a young leader in the church uh, and, and, and even just as a family man that communication good communication is like oxygen, an, an organization as an organism thrives on healthy communication. good what else yeah Bu- did you say busyness busyness, busyness, you Americans um kills connectivity there were a couple more hands yeah apathy kills connectivity interesting and apathy as opposed to you you didn't say ignorance you said apathy and there's a difference apathy knows there's an issue and chooses not to address it yeah how about one more yeah okay your per a personal agenda could dismantle connectivity okay all right one more i saw a hand isolation. isolation isolation kills connectivity thank you everybody yeah i think the word that we really need to focus on and consider today is individualism individualism stifles connectivity. My friend Erwin Inns, um, who wrote a chapter called Reconciliation or Bust in the book Heal Us Emmanuel, we have it on our book table, he wrote an article called Reconciliation or Bust, and, and he says in, in, that, in that chapter that the American church has been struggling to desegregate itself for decades has you know I mean we're we're decades past the civil rights era and yet the american church is still trying to and struggling to desegregate itself and now erwin uh, is an african american man so his experience as an american as a christian who is an american is different from mine But what he writes in that book is is one of the reasons that the American church is struggling racially is for what he calls radical individualism. He says that American Christians and how we understand our faith and the gospel itself are radically individualistic. That Americans value the personal benefits of the gospel And devalue the corporate benefits of the gospel. Which makes it even harder for people who are historically and experientially at odds with one another. Whether it's racism or prejudice or bad memories. To to make it a point, to make it a priority to find a way to come together as Jews and Gentiles did in Antioch. And in Jerusalem. Although it was very hard. Now, of course, there are individual Christians. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, please. Of course, the Bible says that God saves persons, people, men and women, young and old. God saves individuals. There are individual Christians, of course, but individualistic Christianity is a contradiction. An individualistic Christian is an oxymoron. They are two contradictory terms put next to each other. Now, let me tell you what I mean by individualistic Christianity or individualism of any kind as Americans understand it. Individualistic means believing what is most appealing to you without input from other people. Individualistic is leading with no accountability whether it's the fact that you're the head of your home or you're in a position of authority in your vocation where you work or you own something or you teach or your ministry in your church, whatever it may be. Individualistic means leading without accountability. Individualistic means pursuing the American dream while not pursuing the needs of the people around you. Pursuing what all Americans believe is their birthright for yourself and for your family without pursuing the needs of the people in your life and in your community. And the source of individualism, I believe, is pride. That's what C.S. Lewis said about himself. C.S. Lewis said, when I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own, he wrote, by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches or the gospel halls. Lewis Lewis said, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. I love it. Every time you think your church music is better than someone else's church music, remember, C.S. Lewis thought it was all fifth-rate, sixth-rate music. Uh, JT, we're not saying anything. Steve, we're not saying anything about your music to the church. It's, um, we're, not, we're not rating your music. That's what C.S. Lewis had to say about his experiences when he would go to the church. And, and he said, um, I dislike very much their hymns. He goes, but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just six-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Once a month we read the Apostles Creed. When we, take, when we celebrate the Lord's table. I believe in God the Father. And then yada yada yada. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then there's some. But what's the third part? I believe. Oh, what is going on with this thing? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, not meaning Roman Catholicism, meaning the universal church. Okay? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. In the same moment that you profess faith in God and faith in Jesus and faith in his Holy Spirit, you say every month that you believe in the church. And Tim Keller once said that it, is just as, it is, takes just as much faith to commit yourself to the church as it takes to commit yourself to Jesus. And Christians, based on the Apostles' Creed, which is super early, we're talking second century, Christians have always believed that it takes faith. It takes faith to commit yourself to the church. But you've been burned. I know some of you have been burned. I know it. And I have too. It is hard to entrust ourselves to people. We've been sharing faith stories and, and experiences of being in other religious circumstances and other churches, as we've been talking about the issue of membership in the last several months. We've all many of us have been burned by churches, by leaders, by other Christians, people who call themselves Christians. We've been burned, and it is hard to commit ourselves to one another. We say we do, but it's really hard, isn't it, to believe in the church. If you do not want to commit yourself to other Christians because you have been burned, I am not letting you off the hook today. As much as I sympathize with compassion for how you have been hurting, but you don't get off the hook because of Acts chapter 11, because we discovered that the Christians in Antioch and Jerusalem had to learn how to embrace Saul who had persecuted them. And had sent some of their friends and family members to prison, maybe even to their death. And Saul in humility had to repent and the church in humility had to allow him to repent and they had to struggle to learn how to trust one another and forgive one another and in faith commit themselves to one another. If you don't want to commit yourself to God's people, it is because you are prideful and you are probably too individualistic. And individualism and pride, they exclude you They exclude you from the connectivity that God's spirit has laid out for you to be blessed by. It's it's like you need to be refreshed. It's like you're an app that's gone amok and is not working with the system. And you don't have to stay that way. We don't have to stay that way. Jesus Christ is committed to keeping his people connected. And here's the amazing thing is that you and I don't make it happen. He does. The reason, the reason they're encouraged to stick it out and to stay together is because Jesus promises to keep them together. We read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul, this is years later, Paul writes a letter to Christians and Jews. Okay? These are people who were for, for thousands of years hostile toward one another. Religiously, racially, culturally hostile to one another and Paul is talking to all of them. We have, to, we have to read it that way. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he's talking about Gentiles. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Now he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. For Jesus himself is our peace. It, it's not that Jesus died on the cross and now go, be, go make peace with one another. He's saying Jesus is our peace. You're not even your own peace. Jesus is our peace, Paul said to Jews and Gentiles, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, which was crucified, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see, if you, are cons- if you don't want to become a Christian because you're afraid of being labeled a Christian, Or if you're struggling with that identity, if you are a Christian, you're struggling with what it really means to be a Christian and you really don't want to trust people because we've hurt one another, I want you to take encouragement for what Paul is saying. Because you see that Christians' ability to unify and to stay unified doesn't originate with them, does it? It originates with Jesus and his blood. So Christ's blood not only covers you and forgives you, As individuals. But Christ's blood. Seals our unity. Between Antioch and Jerusalem. Between African American. And Asian American. And white American. Between American Christians. And Iranian Christians. Between Christians who voted Democrat. And Christians who voted Republican. Between Christians who like the Red Sox. And Christians who like the Yankees. And Christians who like the Orioles. Christ's. Blood establishes our unity. It seals it. So that sincere Christians are known for their commitment to Jesus and their connection to one another. Anything less than that, friend, according to Luke, is not Christianity as God has programmed it, as God has designed it. Becky was a resident life mentor. I should have asked you if I could talk about it. Can I talk about this? Thanks. (laughs) Supposed to ask your family members. I forgot. She's heard me say this many times. So thank you. So Becky was a resident life mentor to an entire floor of college freshman girls. When we started getting serious in our relationship. So. She was a mentor to this floor of freshman girls, uh, and all these girls were very close. One of them committed suicide that year. Some of them became Christians that year. But I remember realizing if I was going to, if I was going to commit myself to Becky, I had to commit myself to her people. I, if I was going to love her, I had to accept her people. I had to accept her family. I had to accept her friends. I had to accept this floor of freshman girls who, who demanded so much of her time and energy and so much of her heart. If I was going to love her, I had to find a way to love them. I'm going to marry her. I wasn't going to marry them. But I had to understand that they became a part of the equation for me. And really being a Christian, that's what, being, that's what calling yourself a Christian really is in its totality is the Lord Jesus Christ gives himself to you. He just gives himself to you. And when you get Jesus, I'm sorry, man, you get me. It's too bad. When you get Jesus, I get you. And we get one another when we get Jesus. And we get people in other churches, in other Christian denominations, who may look very different and talk very differently than us and think in different ways. And yet the blood of Christ establishes our unity. And as we hold one another accountable person to person, church to church, denomination to denomination, leader to leader, the purity of Jesus's message remains. Okay. We don't lose it. He establishes it. So, I'm asking you, I'm I'm encouraging you to embrace Christ's people. We need to really think about that as Americans. We, we 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 are sold individualism from the moment we're born. I'm asking you to embrace Christ's people and entrust yourself to them. However he asks you to. Or... If, you're, if you haven't embraced Christ, start there. Embrace Jesus first. Embrace this man who, who was able to unite Jews and Gentiles. Think about that. Who is able to unite all of us, regardless of where we're coming from. So, let's pray. Father, we can't do this on our own. There is no way. There is no way. We are too apathetic. We are too selfish. We are too individualistic. We are too drawn. We are very drawn to preserving our own and protecting our own. We ask that you would do at Deep Run Church and you would do in Carroll County and you would do in the United States amongst your people called by the name of Christ what you did between Jerusalem and Antioch. Would you do it, Father? And would you give us the faith to be a part of it? In Christ's name, amen.